Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, one of the most effective fighting units Russia fielded in Ukraine saw their leader marching on Moscow last weekend. Where does that leave Russia, and what state does it leave the Putin regime back home? Despite a lot of success from the men's and women's soccer teams, Soccer Canada is staring down the barrel of financial turmoil. We'll give you the reasons why and some explanations as to what we could do going forward. And it would appear that months before changes to Ontario's Greenbelt were announced, Ontario Premier Doug Ford already knew what he wanted to do with it. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Investigations continuing, and, and a lot of hypothetical answers are, are being tossed around here as to exactly what happened in, in Russia this past weekend, why it happened, why did it end so suddenly, and what are the ongoing ramifications of it? Uh, we know that Vladimir Putin t- touched on that yesterday. Uh, he's made a couple of different uh, uh, addresses to the to the people, which is the international community really as well. To get some perspective on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Professor Oral Brown. Uh, professor Brown is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Good morning. Let me ask you right up front, if we could just circle back to, to last Saturday morning. Were you surprised at what happened and, and how, how how it unfolded as, as quickly as it did? Yes and no, because uh, dictatorships are very unpredictable. They can look very strong, very stable, and they can all of a sudden begin to look shaky and disintegrate. I uh, was surprised that it ended this quickly and that... Uh, Precaution was so ill-prepared for how this uh, unrolled because he obviously expected that there would be units within the Russian military on a large scale that would come over, that there may be others in the Russian government who would take a chance and support him. And he did not get that, although when we look at how he marched into the headquarters, southern headquarters of the Russian military, in the large city of Rostov-on-Don, the Russian army was passive and his forces were able to get within 200 miles of Moscow. But uh, ultimately, the system rallied somewhat, precaution back down, but the damage has been done and the damage is long term. I want to talk about that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, and I think it was you that told us about a year or so ago, Professor, uh, that when it comes to like insurrections that were, and, and you know governments being overthrown in, in countries, well, like Russia, uh, we don't hear about it until it happens uh, because there's a lot of work that has to be done behind closed doors because, uh, let's face it, you know, coups that don't go well usually end up badly for the people that are doing the organizing for it. Uh, and this one did not go well. So I, let's, let's talk a little bit about that first of all. Uh, about Prizhelkin and where he's going to end up. I mean, he's been told he has amnesty right now. Uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't seem to me, Professor, to be the sort of guy that can let somebody who tried to to take his power away from him uh, to coexist anywhere else in the world. I mean, eventually, something untoward usually happens to those people. Are you expecting something like that here? It would not be surprising because not only Vladimir Putin's uh, character, and he has not hesitated to go... After opponents, we know that uh, Boris Nemtsov was assassinated, and many believe that uh, the Kremlin's fingerprints were on it. He had been uh, a very popular opposition leader in 2015, uh, uh, who was killed. 
we know that ex-KGB agents who wound up in Britain were also killed, poisoned, uh, either with polonium-210 or there were attempts on their lives with, uh, Novichok, uh, uh, vi- uh, with the Novichok virus. And so um, th- there is the personality, but the nature of Putin's rule, which uh, is much closer to that of a, an organized crime syndicate than a regular government, cannot allow for any appearance of vulnerability, uh, for the appearance of weakness. So what we see Vladimir Putin doing now for the past couple of days is to go out and speak uh, in a way in which he tries to reassert authority to project strength. And one of the ways that might happen is to have uh, Prigozhin punished. But uh, so far, Putin had to compromise. And this is going to be something that he cannot overcome. Uh, on Saturday uh, morning, he went on television, a five-minute uh, address, in which he said that uh, this mutiny was uh, an armed rebellion, that it was a betrayal, that it was a stab in the back, that it was treason. Seven hours later, he had to agree to a compromise where the leader, as well as the Wagner group, would be given amnesty, that all charges would be dropped. That is not a good precedent in that kind of precedent, in that kind of uh, uh, leadership structure. There have been a couple of different uh, scenarios that have been described, I guess, depending on, on you know who we're talking to or who we're listening to, Professor, uh, about, as you said, the outcome of this. Some are suggesting uh, that Putin comes out at least in the eyes of the Russian people, as as a strong man once again. In other words, uh, you know, there, there was a threat there from Brzezokin, but he's gone. He backed away, and Putin was the victor. That, that's one. The other is that this has shown a major chink in his armor, and even though, because Putin has a, a, an iron grip on, on the, the messaging coming out of the Kremlin, uh, the oligarchs don't. Uh, and they look at a guy like like Prizhukin and said, all right, maybe he didn't succeed, but maybe I can. I mean, is is, is Putin going to be looking behind his, his back from here on in? He will constantly be looking uh, uh, around and uh, not knowing who might turn on him, because let's not forget that in some ways, Prigozhin and the Wagner group have been uh, Putin's own creation. Mm-hmm. That not very long ago, Prigozhin was hailed as a hero, that his forces had taken uh, Bakhmut, where the regular Russian military could not do it. The Prigozhin was able to speak up and say the kind of things that others were not able to do. And Prigozhin went public and he said three very important things, that this was not uh, a special military operation. This was an actual war. Second, that this war was unjustified, that uh, Putin had been misled by various leaders into getting this conflict that was unnecessary, that Ukraine was not a threat. And the third element was that this war was fought in the most wasteful way, where thousands upon thousands of Russian soldiers were killed, and that their families would always uh, resent this, and that uh, some people would have to pay a price for that. Now, that was out in the public. It was the case that the mayor of Moscow had to call a special emergency measure where he was going to close down the city to a significant extent on Monday, not knowing that this was going to be over this quickly. And he said that because of this measure, people should not go to work. This is the center of uh, uh, of uh, Russian Russian power. 
And even today, Putin made an address and he was thanking airmen for uh, standing with him uh, and uh, preventing from, uh, this from becoming uh, a civil war. So he's reinforcing this image that this was a very, very major challenge. It's hard to see how he can then portray this as some kind of victory by a strong man, because if you have absolute, absolute power, you are not challenged. You can trust people. And not only uh, uh, is it that you trust people, but if anyone shows the slightest deviation or the slightest defiance, there's instant and decisive punishment. And yet in this case, there was uh, a compromise agreement where these uh, insurrectionists, these mutinists, these people who threatened civil war, according to Vladimir Putin himself, have been allowed to go. What about that? I mean, you know, Prashokin's assertion was that he was never trying to overthrow Putin, uh, that this had to do with the, the discontent about, you know, the uh, the defense minister basically cutting off supplies uh, for, for the Wagner troops. Uh, and, of course, the uh, assertion, I guess it was about three or four days before that, uh, that they all had to essentially swear allegiance to, to Putin and, and sign up for the Russian army. Uh, and this was a pushback on that. Uh, you've been studying this for years, Professor. Do you, in, in, in your mind, I think that Prashogin did have some ambitions of power, and and, and you know why why else was he going to Moscow? For many many months, uh, and perhaps even longer, he had a huge dispute with the Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu, who was uh, a great political operator, and uh, has been the Minister of Defense for a long time, and with the Chief of Staff General Gerasimov. Uh, Prigozhin thought that these people got Russia into an un unnecessary war and they were prosecuting it in a completely incompetent way. And his goal was to get rid of these people. So it does not appear that he wanted to overthrow Putin, but his hope was that somehow Putin would side with him because in part he was encouraged by uh, to, to criticize these uh, leaders, uh, other people could not have done it, by Vladimir Putin who runs a kind of regime where he pits one faction against the other. And so uh, Prigozhin seemed to have concluded that he was indispensable. This is how he was portrayed by Putin himself. And believing himself to be indispensable, perhaps he also concluded that he was invincible and that he would take these actions and that as long as he did not attack Putin himself, he could convince Putin, he could convince others in the government to get rid of Shoigu, get rid of uh, Gerasimov, and maybe either conclude this war or to have leaders brought in who could prosecute this war effectively. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, I know our time is limited uh, and there's so many different avenues to cover here. Uh, but you could argue that the Wagner group were the ones who were probably were the most effective Russian force in the war. Uh, they seem to have the, the, the victories that counted, etc. And a lot of that stuff now has, has regressed now since they've left. They're probably not coming back. Uh, I don't know how many of them are actually going to re-enlist with the Russian army. Uh, what does that do to, to Russia's uh, efforts in, in Ukraine right now? It definitely weakens the Russian military because... These units, and you know, we heard about the convicts who were used as cannon fodder, but the core of the Wagner uh, private army was made up of former Russian military officers and uh, uh, soldiers who came from some of the best units. 
These were highly professional individuals, really well trained. They were effective uh, in a fight and they were feared and respected by the Ukrainian forces. Now they will no longer be able to fight as a unit. They are going to be dispersed among the military. They will lose the special status that they had. They were told by Vladimir Putin that they can either join or they can go back to their families or they can go to Belarus. So there is a a tremendous amount of disillusionment and bitterness within these forces. And uh, those who would be integrated into the Russian military, they may cause problems because they will be able to talk to others and show them that they are indeed poorly led, that uh, the Russian military has uh, become as corrupt as Russian society itself with uh, leaders who are more inclined, as Prigozhin claimed, to try to line their own pockets than to do the best for their country. Because it would seem that the, 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 the rank-and-file members, I guess, of the Wagner Group were more loyal to their leader than they were to, to, to the Kremlin. This is what happened uh, when this uh, armed insurrection uh, began, and we saw that many uh, of the Russian military units, such as uh, in um, Rostov-on-Don, which is a city of about a million, and the headquarters of the Southern District, as I noted, and Voronezh, they, they were passive. Um, yes, there were some uh, uh, units in the Air Force that fired on uh, the columns uh, of uh, the Prigozhin forces and uh, the Wagner uh, forces fired back and Putin admitted that uh, maybe a dozen pilots were killed, several aircraft uh, were destroyed. So either the Russian military was passive or it was not particularly uh, effective. And this shows uh, that there were issues of loyalty, that there were issues of, uh, of effectiveness, and most importantly, the aura of invincibility that Putin tried to project, which is so necessary to this kind of governance. And this is why I argued in an article that uh, as much as we want to look at social science, decision-making theory, and Machiavelli, and uh, Clausewitz, we might be better off looking at uh, The Sopranos or looking at uh, the Godfather movies to understand this kind of rule. In this kind of rule, uh, that aura of invincibility is absolutely crucial. And you cannot restore that. Uh, He will certainly claim that he has won Putin. He will claim that he has the loyalty of various individuals. He will trot out uh, leaders of uh, different uh, uh, elements of the military, of the security forces, to demonstrate that loyalty, but it will never be secure. You will never know who may turn on him again. Exactly. Uh, Professor, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An ongoing story here that uh, seems to be getting more and more bleak as we get more numbers about this. Canada's soccer finances have worsened to the point that both senior national teams may not play in international windows this fall, and the organization may eventually need to contemplate filing for bankruptcy protection. That's according to uh, Jason DeVos, who was the interim uh, general secretary. Uh, He mentioned this in a rather lengthy interview with the TSN uh, just a little while ago. 
Uh, this comes as the women's national team, of course, is preparing for the, the World Cup. That's just coming up next month. And the men's teams, of course, is uh, getting set to compete in the, in the Gold Cup. So what's going on? And how do we rectify this situation that's really become a mess? Our next guest uh, is going to help us uh, shed some light on that. Dr. Ann Pegararo is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, well, it's always great to be here. I, I, I don't it's, watching the interview and and, and the, some of the comments that uh, that Jason DeVos had here. Uh, they haven't really solved the problem. I mean, they're going through money here. The they're, the fact that he's even mentioning. Uh, bankruptcy here. And he was pretty clear to say that we're not going down that road, but he says, I needed to learn more about it as to whether or not it's a viable option. I think it really just underscores uh, the rather dire circumstance that uh, this whole program is under right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, first I, I sort of say kudos to Jason. He stepped into this job, um, you know, probably wasn't his choice. He comes from the player development side. Um, and But he's out of Canada soccer provided the most transparency of any of the leaders they've had. So, you know, he's, he's been honest and he's sharing right now that they've got some financial troubles and he's trying to figure out um, the best, you know, way forward for them, including educating himself about potential bankruptcy. So kudos to him and the transparency, but on the sad side, you know, I think we're learning more about how badly mismanaged uh, the organization has been in the last little while. Well, and there, that transparency, that's a word that keeps coming out, but it's a, they talk the talk oftentimes. They don't always walk the walk when it comes to being forthcoming with uh, with where the money is being spent. Uh, and, but it was interesting, it's just the tone of, of what Jason had to say during that that, that conversation. Because uh, I know that during the, sen- or the the parliamentary hearings about this and, and some of the other investigations uh, from Rick Westhead from TSN and others, uh, it seemed pretty obvious, as you say, that, that there's a, a pretty strong case for uh, some mismanagement of some funds, shall we say, that uh, should have been directed towards these programs, and they haven't. But I got the sense from from DeVos that he's kind of saying, yeah, that's the way it is, but how do we get out of it? Like, where are? We? This is where we are now. What's going to happen? And, and I don't know that there's any easy answers. As a matter of fact, I don't think there are any. Well, I mean, they've they've run through quite a bit of their their reserve fund. Um, you know, we we've talked about this before. You and I, the crippling deal with Canada soccer business, I think, is really showing its head here. Is that you know it it is not providing the revenue that they need. Uh, and as we've also under talked about before, in general, the Canadian sports system is pretty underfunded from the federal government. It hasn't changed its level of funding in a long time, and yet the costs of running sport have increased. And particularly if we look at soccer, we now have successful men's and women's teams. Before, we mostly just had one team, and they've got to support two teams that are competing at international high levels, um, and, and the cost of that has increased significantly. So so I do think they've been crunched on the cost side, but we also have talked about, you know, the the Canada soccer deal, previous uh, board decisions, um, you know, and I think a little bit of the impact of COVID is still being felt by this organization. Yeah, and and that deal, which uh, you're right, I mean, it's, it's, it's hanging over this whole scenario here. And, and you talk about the revenue being generated. Of course, as the teams become more successful, both the men's and women's teams, uh, have had great success uh, in the last little while qualifying for World Cup. And, of course, uh, the women's team uh, heading off to their competition in, in just a little while. Uh, there was revenue generated, but because of this deal, of course, with uh, the, the league, uh, the, CF, the CPL, uh, the money's all going to media rights and everything. Sponsorships is going to that league instead of to where they expected it to go. Uh, and and I, I guess the, the short answer to this is, is there a, a, a way – to renegotiate that deal. I mean, there's been enough media attention to this right now. 
uh, and people keep pointing to this, and rightly so, that that seems to be one of the major problems here. Uh, I don't know if you can embarrass them into saying, let's renegotiate the deal with because uh, we the, the, the money that they've gone here, and we all love, you know, professional soccer. It's wonderful to have it here. But it's the funding source, I think, that's really got a lot of people concerned about that. That's money that should be going to the national programs, and it's not. Yeah, and I, you know, I think this is one of the reasons they could be considering bankruptcy. Bankruptcy might be the way out of the contract because we, like you said, other than public shaming, how do how do we get, um, you know, Canadian soccer business who holds the cards in this deal right now to renegotiate it? It wouldn't be in the best interest of them as a business. Bankruptcy would would be one way out, but that's also a horrendous choice. You know, we're talking about um, the players trying to sign a contract right now with Canada Soccer, and even if they did sign it and it went bankrupt, they would get pennies on the dollar. So we'd be back to um, you know, a bad sort of labor situation. And I do think the labor approach is also responsible for some of these problems. You know, through the previous chair, um, we we ended up with a, um, uh, the, bo- the men boycotting a game. You have to pay the appearance fees for that uh, and with no revenue to go with it. So we do have we do have some bad decisions by the previous board, which signed the contract and the ongoing contract with Canada Soccer Business in, in a bit of a stranglehold for this organization. Well, there's an equity issue here too, wasn't there, Doctor? About where the money was going to go and and how much the the men's team was going to get, how much the women's team was going to get. Absolutely, and we've talked about this before. You know, I think this is the first time that our women's team have seen, um, you know, that they haven't been adequately resourced, and and it's not just in terms of their own um, pay; it's in terms of support for them as a team, the number of players who can come to camp, how long the camp can be, how they fly, how they're accommodated. Uh, what the staff is that, that travels with the team. They saw what was resourced to the men's team at the World Cup and realized they're not getting the same level of resources. And arguably, they're the more successful team. But we also saw John Herdman in the last couple of days talking about, you know, compromises his team had to make in their preparation for their recent matches. And 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 he's feeling the heat from the budget right now uh, also. So I think it's, uh, you know, I... I think we're at a time with Canadian soccer with the most successful our women's team has ever been, our men's team as well, and a World Cup that we're co-hosting looming in just three years. Um, there needs to be some action quick to, to turn this around. Well, that's, yeah, I know one of the questions that was asked during the interview. I mean, you know, the same people that signed that deal where the money was has been redirected, shall we say, were the same ones that were bidding for the, the for the World Cup to be here. So in other words, there, there was, uh, you know, the, the, it's not as if they were blindsided by this. They knew it was going to happen. They knew that these teams had to be uh, ready for that. And uh, as you say, this is this is money that, that could be going towards games. I mean, you've got to prepare for these games. You've got to have some some competitive games in the meantime. And, uh, you know, when, when as you say, they can't schedule them. I know they lost an opportunity uh, for a couple of games coming up in the not-too-distant future. And they, they were awarded to Mexico instead because we were dragging our heels. Well, it's it's almost as if Jason DeVos was looking under seat cushions for money. I mean, because that's, that's how dire the circumstances become right now. Uh, there's got to be some positive action and some bold moves here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're, we're about to send our, our women, our Olympic gold medal champion women off to the World Cup without a send-off game, without proper preparation, you know, and as well with the distraction of not having a contract signed. So yeah, drastic actions needed for, for immediately for that team for some success, but also for the long term, you know, the fall, the, the discussion of not playing in the fall international window is is damaging. That's when we're looking at the women's team qualifying, uh, starting to qualify for the Olympics the following year. All of these things have ramifications for being able to continue to field successful teams uh, for both the men and women in particular into, you know, when the eyes of the world are going to be on us in 2026. 
And it's a vicious cycle, though, isn't it, Doctor? I mean, if, if the teams do not perform well and, and we go through a, a, a downward cycle like that, uh, sponsorships tend to dry up, which is only going to make it this bad situation even worse. Absolutely. I mean, right now is the best time. We we have success. We have teams that are, are uh, you know, great investments, to be clear, both the women's and the men's team for sponsors. And so, you know, this deal with Canada Soccer Business is hampering some of the, the realization of that funding that could support these athletes. We've seen some workarounds recently for the women's team, but, you know, this is the moment, I think, for Canadian soccer. And so whether it's, it's the sport minister getting involved, whether it's um, a wholesale change of that board, um, some Something drastic needs to happen and needs to happen soon well the the phraseology is is uh, concerning because they have said yeah the, about that contract they said they're willing to modernize it i have no idea what that means but i mean it, it doesn't sound as if there's a whole lot of flexibility there no and i mean we you know it, it, we have to look at it from a business perspective what is in the best interest of canada soccer business is not necessarily the same that's the best interest for for uh um you know canada soccer at this point i think when they signed this deal several years ago they were both organizations in different places and now we're seeing um you know one one organization certainly prospered from the deal and the other one is certainly not um, but the driver's seat is, is is the way the contract, and from what I read it, is still with Canada Soccer Business, and and I think that's that's our long term problem. Is there is there a, a, at least a short term role for the federal government to play here? I, I I don't know bridge financing something like that to to at least put them on the right road. I think there is. I mean, they've ordered an audit. Uh, I think that's why Jason DeVos is being forthcoming right now. He knows what's going to come out in that audit. And he's telling us about it ahead of time. So that's, that's a good move on his part to try to get ahead. But I do think the government could step in and play an oversight. And, and I particularly think in this case, because of the hosting of the World Cup coming, this is a big investment from the federal government to host um, that uh, you know large of a mega event. And they need some assurances that the funding they're going to put in and the event is going to come off uh, in a way that that benefits the entire nation. So I do think there's a role for them. Um, what, what they're willing to do at this point, uh, I'm not sure. It would be, I guess, even a bolder step than they've made with um, Hockey Canada. So we'll have to wait and see if the sport minister is going to going to make a more drastic step after the news of the last couple of days. Yeah, I get the same sense that whether they like it or not, the ball's pretty much in the federal government's court here right now. So we'll see just uh, how they're going to respond to that. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks for the conversation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we, we put trust in people politically and in business, and, and we, we like to think that everybody's on the up and up and they're, they're doing the best they can to what they're supposed to be doing, whether it's in the, the business sector or the political sector. But when you start getting indications that maybe we're being duped, uh, it really galls me. And I think it galls an awful lot of people too, because it's kind of betraying that trust. And we're going to talk about a couple of stories like that uh, in the first part of the program today. And kicking it off, of course, is, uh, uh, well, the everlasting story, it seems like it anyway, about the Greenbelt legislation here in the province of Ontario. Uh, of course, the, the contentious the issue continues and the debate continues on this. Uh, there are ongoing investigations about this and uh, some uh, interesting uh, sidebar issues here about exactly who knew what and when. I mean, those are the questions you obviously ask during investigations. And our next guest is uh, very good at asking and very good at finding some of the details, even though the powers that be may not necessarily want those details to be made public. Uh, she is Emma McIntosh. She was an award-winning journalist and a reporter for the Narwhal who has been following this story and uh, doing her best to shed some light on an awful lot of st stuff that we need to know as this story unfolds. And uh, Emma joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what she's been working on. Emma, great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for this. 
Good morning, Bill. Always good to be here. Well, you have been relentless in this. Thank God you have, because there's, there's been a lot of stalling and, and, and look over there, don't look over here sort of attitude from the Ford government on this. Uh, if I could just, the contentious, just maybe characterize it in this way. Uh, the Ford contention here seems to be, this wasn't even my idea. This was uh, something that, that staff came up with and said, this is what you guys should probably do. Uh, you know, I, it was the old, you know, I know nothing sort of thing. But, but the, the information that you're uncovering here seems to paint a different picture. Yeah, and you know, that claim from the premier has never quite seemed to explain everything that happened here. You know, how is it that the premier promises for years not to do something, and then all of a sudden he does it, right? I, I don't think that would happen without his approval. Um, but but what I found is that a couple of months before we, the public, found out about the plan to open the green belt, and a couple of weeks after the last election, the premier's office was talking about something discussing the green belt. They won't tell us what, they won't say what it is. And that um, in this bigger policy document that discussed whatever that was going to be, the premier's feedback was also in there. Now, I know that that's a lot of mites and we don't know exactly what's, um, but I think it's worth asking if the government was talking about something related to the green belt, some sort of policy change related to the green belt months before they did something and the premier's feedback was in there. Is it really possible that he didn't know that that plan was going on? And and that's kind of the, the question that we're trying to answer here. Well, and the, the, the clip that and I, we must've played it a hundred times, uh, but it's, it's the premier himself. And this is during the, that election campaign you're just referring to where he says, uh, you said, you told me not to touch the green belt. We're not going to touch the green belt. That to me is, you know, in, in the realm of an election campaign is a campaign promise. And it certainly sounds like a vow or a commitment. Uh, his municipal affairs minister, Steve Clark made similar comments. I think you actually did a count uh, something like 37, 38 times. The two of them said, we're not going in the green belt. Don't worry about it. And then as you say, the, the documentation you're uncovering now seems to indicate that days after the election, uh, they were heading into the green belt. They hadn't made it official yet, but they were sure talking about it behind closed doors. Maybe. And I want to be really careful to say that we don't know exactly what they were talking about. It's possible they were talking about something else that they didn't go through with. But given the timing, given the subject matter, uh, I think the public deserves a little more transparency here than what we're getting. I, I understand you have to walk a fine line here. And I know that uh, that when you did ask some questions about this, they just said that it was a wide-ranging discussion, uh, which is which, which is not a denial by any stretch of the imagination. It just says they talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, was the Green Belt part of that? They don't seem to want to give you a clear answer on that. Yeah, and that's another thing too, right? Um, sometimes the questions that officials choose not to answer are just as telling as the ones that they do. We saw that in the aftermath of this Greenbelt decision in the first place. There were weeks where the Premier and his cabinet wouldn't answer when asked um, if they had coordinated with developers to come up with this whole plan. Um, by the time they answered it, people were already pretty mad. Uh, and a lot of people were already assuming that was the case, even though you know we're still unraveling what happened there. And, and something similar is happening here. I asked the government, was whatever was in that slide deck, whatever was in this big policy document, was that about the plan to open up parts of the green belt? And they didn't answer. Um, and, and so I'll be really curious to see whether they decide to answer that in the future. I think the public deserves to know. Let me circle back a bit. I want our listeners to understand uh, some of the challenges that you've been facing as you've tried to, to get the light shone on this story. 
how difficult is it to obtain some of this documentation? I mean, you, there are channels and there is a process uh, that you you follow, and and you know you have to wait some time. Clearly, but uh, governments tend to drag their feet uh, when it comes to uh, to you know making information public, especially if it might be embarrassing to them. Oh yeah, big time. And this is a great example of that. Um, so just to, to talk about what we're talking about, um, what I've got here is an email chain that shows that this you know policy discussion was taking place. Um, and you'd think that it would be pretty straightforward to get something like that, but the government actually denied me access to it twice before releasing it. The first time they said no part of it could be released uh, because it's all cabinet confidential. Then they released a little bit. And then they released a little bit more. And finally, we were able to piece it together. Um, big chunks of it are still redacted, including, you know, whatever that actual Greenbelt discussion was. Um, there was also a weird side plot where the government violated my privacy rights while processing one of these FOI requests. And that's that's an issue that we're still dealing with um, at the privacy commissioner. Uh, and it's really relevant to a larger problem with the freedom of information system in this province, for sure. And, and it's not unique to the Ford government, by the way, just about every government, federal and provincial, uh, and municipal for that matter, uh, can be this way. Uh, and and they always use it under the guise of, well, this is confidential information, you know, this is part of a negotiation, yada, 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 uh, because those are the criteria that are set up for, for not releasing these things to the public. But if you don't see them, how do you know that? Well, yeah, that's part of it. And I think... Sometimes people might hear these discussions about freedom of information and documents and think, oh, it's just nosy journalists trying to poke their nose into things. But I think the important thing to remember if you're listening to this is that that's a law there to, so that you can hold the government accountable, so that you can know what they're doing. Um, it's not about me. It's about what I'm asking for on the public's behalf. And uh, it, it shouldn't take three separate freedom of information requests, which each have their own costs associated and appeal costs associated um, to get the same document unsealed. That that shouldn't be how the system works. And we have the right to demand better. If you deal with the, the different layers of government in different circumstances like this, and you see the, the kind of game that they can play in situations and the spin they can put on things, uh, you do tend to become a little skeptical about anything that they do say, and you just want to get some clarification and I know that, you know, subsequent to, to his promises and then all of a sudden his reversal of, of that policy with the Green Belt, uh, a lot of journalists such as yourself, Emma, were, were making those same requests and asking the premier whenever you got the opportunity in these media scrums, you know, what about the, the, the change of mind, the flip-flop here? And and you included in, in your latest piece here in the, in the Narwhal, but, uh, and the premier says, I want to categorically say no, it wasn't discussed. Uh which is kind of wordsmithing. It, it's he didn't say categorically you no. Know, he says I want to say that uh, <laughs> categorically no. And I know that's that may be parsing and come on, you're nitpicking. But uh, it's it's the game that's played right now. I mean, there's always going to be some little shred of deniability here. Uh, the way they respond to some of these things. And and that's why I'm really eager to see what comes out of the bigger watchdog investigations, frankly. Um, I'm doing my best here, me with my keyboard and the Freedom of Information system. But the Auditor General, the Integrity Commissioner, these are people who can compel interviews with people who are not so keen to talk to me. Uh, people who can see documents that I cannot access. And I really think that it's only a matter of time until we understand more about 
how this happened. It's just that we're going to have to be patient and keep chipping away at it in the meantime. Well, because one of the overriding questions here is is why the flip-flop? Uh, and and I know he and, and Minister Steve Clark were saying, well, you know, we've got to build houses. You know, we're, we're committed to building houses, uh, trying to tie those two things together. Yet the body of evidence that, that is there that we do know, uh, including from his own special committee that he actually selected, handpicked himself, uh, every bit of evidence seems to think you don't need to go into the Greenbelt. There's more than enough available land uh, within the, the cities and within this province that you don't have to have those incursions. And that was part of their report. Uh, yet they just seem to have, have you know, forgotten all about that. And you got to ask yourself, you know, okay, wh- why did you go this way? I mean, you know, where's show us some information, show us some data uh, that, that indicates that this is absolutely necessary to do, and they haven't really done that yet. And that's something that I really think would help this conversation, just a little bit of transparency. Since the day that this decision came out, the Narwhal has been asking, and a lot of reporters have been asking, for the government to show us the evidence, um, to show us what their justification was for this really monumental decision. And let's not lose sight of it. I mean, opening up even parts of the Greenbelt is a really big deal. That's one of the most popular public policies this province has ever had, frankly. And so... Yeah, I think um, we we deserve the answers. And the longer the government holds off and the longer the government delays telling us what it was thinking or what its rationale was, the more room there is for speculation. And the more time there is, frankly, for people like me to dig and, and find documents they might not want us to see like this one. No, and, and cut through the spin, which is something that you do so well. I mean, you know, because, uh, again, part of the government response here is, okay, yeah, we're, we're doing this, but we're adding more stuff to the Greenbelt uh, in other parts of the province, which is really, you know, it's 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 a bit misleading in that suggestion because the parts in which they're incurring are some of the nicest and most uh, profitable agricultural lands, uh, not just in Ontario, but probably in Canada. Uh, there's, you know, the ecosystems, there's, there's the water tables underneath there. Uh, in places bordering on the Hollow Marsh and so many other areas. Uh, and they, they want to develop that. And at the same time, they say, yeah, but we'll put it this big chunk over here. Well, that's, you know, the postcard there. That, that's the middle of nowhere, Ontario. Um, it's That's not what the purpose of the Green Belt was for. And, and they seem to have skewed that just a little bit, again, to try to justify this. That's right. There's so much more to the Green Belt and to protecting land than simply, like, drawing a green line around something. Um, what what's in that area matters and what it's connected to matters. Water flows, animals move around, um, ecosystems don't function on property lines and uh, municipal boundaries. And so um, the, the land that was put in the green belt in the first place was done so for a reason. Were there mistakes here and there? Absolutely. But uh, the premier has said that, you know, he was aiming to go for land that was on the edges of the green belt that was close to you municipal services or you know in some cases he talked about them being just like a field of weeds in the middle of a housing development that didn't make any sense um and what we can tell from going to these places is that's just not true uh one example is the duffins rouge agricultural preserve in mm-hmm. pickering um, this is a huge vast area of unserviced farmland Um, because it was never intended to be developed in the first place. We're talking about like thousands and thousands of acres um, that were completely, you know, pristine class one agricultural soil, some of the best in the country. And I think a lot of time politicians bargain on us not knowing what we're trading away or what we're losing. 
And my hope is that when people understand, they might be willing to think about this a little bit more. I, I, look, we could carry on for the next three hours about this because it is so important and there's so many different facets to it. But time is our enemy as per usual. Uh, quick last question, though. Uh, you mentioned about the other investigations that are ongoing. Uh, any time frame as to when we might get some some clarity from, from those investigations? The only one we're sure about is that the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, will deliver her report before her term is up. And her term is up in early September. So I think if I were to guess, we're looking at late August before we'll have some answers from her. Well, and uh, I'm sure you'll have more information on this between now and then, too. So uh, more to come on this, as they say in our business. Emma, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the great work you're doing. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks, Bill. Always the best. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.